Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to another edition of the Food Focus podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. It's a positive version of the podcast this week as we put talk of a restaurant recession in the rearview mirror. We talk about a number of optimistic topics today. First quarter earnings beats and openings of locations for a couple of small but developing chains. We begin with Chipotle and how can we not, Leighton? They've been in the news all week after they reported their much anticipated first quarter earnings after the closing bell on Tuesday, April 25th. The company annihilated analyst expectations on revenue, profit, and same store sales. We often talk about those are the three areas in which restaurants and retail stores have to succeed in order to appease the market chipotle did exactly that and we had expected double digit same store sales but i don't think we expected numbers that were this good yeah absolutely and you see that some analysts were actually expecting low single digit same store sales even though they were up against some fairly easy quarters this time last year but the company has been slow getting back to their previous growth stance over the past few quarters and this is why some analysts were saying that because of these quarters it's maybe going to take years and not just months or quarters to get a good solid turnaround plan in place however we see that Bill Ackman's move over this past year and some management change and shakeups have potentially helped propel the company back into strong profitability. Earnings per share came in at $1.60 per share versus $1.27 expected by Thomson Reuters estimates. Revenue for the company broke $1 billion, topping $1.07 billion versus the $1.05 billion expected by analysts. This represents, Trent, a 21% increase year over year. Same store sales, the number you were just talking about, 17.8% versus expected growth of just 14 point nine restaurant margins improved for the chain as well in the quarter to 17.7 percent this was going to be an area of focus because people have been talking about the increased promotional activity from the chain and we'll get into those details a little bit later but we compare these margins to last year's margins where they had some trouble they had some food safety costs because of the e coli outbreak which were included in these food waste costs. But overall, it seems like the company is hitting on all cylinders. And speaking of food costs, food costs for the quarter were actually down to 33.8% of sales, an improvement of about 150 basis points compared to that last year's measure. Labor in the quarter was 26.9% of sales. This is what I want to focus on, at least in the short term here for this story, a 400 basis point improvement over this time last year. And this is just astounding to me because you see that labor in proportion to overall sales is down despite them hiring more and saying that they need some more people in the back in order to accommodate mobile sales. And so I think this is a really good sign for the company that they're operating more efficiently and getting those throughput numbers up, even though they're paying out less as an overall percentage. This is something that we touched on, the idea of non-traditional forms of marketing, such as phone redemptions, taking up a lot of space in the back, a lot of people's time. And so this is really good for the company. We see that labor costs this quarter included a 110 basis point increase 
also in wages and then also, again, increased prep time for food safety issues, things that they've revamped, these processes that they've gone through over the past year or so. They talk about now new procedures of cleaning lettuce and bell peppers at these individual locations, whereas before they would do it at a sourcing center. We see also not only labor costs going down as a percentage of sales, but decreasing food costs as well as a percentage of sales. And this is something very interesting here, Trent, because this is a company that we had talked about with this most recent price increase. About one-fifth of their locations are going to experience a price increase on their menus. And you see that this really wasn't a function of increasing food costs or food inputs or increasing labor. That means that down the line in the quarters to come, we should see a basis point expansion on the margin front. I like the fact that you bring up labor as a percentage of sales because, as Chipotle mentioned, the labor cost this quarter did go up in part due to the wage increases that we talk about so often in the retail and restaurant industries and also in increased prep time. But one thing that I liked regarding Chipotle's last year and this entire plan to get back not only to increased profitability, but back to the original store sales marks that they had experienced before the E. coli outbreak was they did not cut back on staff. And this is an intelligent move. I think if we look at it a little bit more, more closely, I believe that this may indeed be a facet of their overall turnaround or of their ability to turn things around. When you decrease staff in the restaurant space, you also decrease the ceiling to which you can output product. And because they did not decrease staffing at all, they were able to keep potential throughput levels high. And so when customers began to come back, they were not dissuaded by incredibly long lines or slow service, but rather now Chipotle is experiencing revenue that is a lot closer at their individual locations to what their staffing levels can actually handle versus leaving a little bit on the table there. So that's why you see wages or labor decrease as a percentage of sales, even though wages for Chipotle employees are going up and they are continuing to hire. Steve Ells did promise at the end of 2016 that they would be refocused on customer service and he mentioned that after touring many Chipotle locations it was very obvious to the management team that most locations had kind of lost their way, lost their direction and lost their initial Chipotle restaurant goals. This is around the time the company let go of co-CEO Monty Moran. They have since revamped their restaurant tour program where managers are graded on five core aspects. Ells felt as though they drifted away from those set criteria for grading operations and didn't reward great managers perhaps as much as they should. So the poor managers were essentially getting the same amount of feedback as the excellent managers. He was quoted as saying that they eliminated dozens of needlessly complex measures and tasks. So in so doing increasing efficiency on the back end we don't know exactly what 12 tasks that they eliminated were useless but since this point they have seen less turnover as employees and managers begin to buy into a simpler system of doing things a simpler way of doing things and of course this is another trend that holds not only across restaurants and retail and, and food service but across pretty much all industries that may experience high turnover anytime you can cut out these complex processes or make it very clear to employees why these processes 
are in place, your employee retention will typically go up. In-store support is being addressed more, which is something that we usually criticize when companies make cuts in this area. So it's a good thing that they're keeping the in-store support going on both in terms of manpower and in terms of IT. They have better digital sales support, and they were kind of in front of this digital boom, recognizing that they were going to begin to get orders off of the phone app or off of their website and bolstered the back end. Because of this, this is something that other operators like Starbucks have struggled somewhat in keeping their in-restaurant throughput up while also fulfilling the digital orders. As for executive bonus compensation, going forward for Chipotle, it'll be a function of two things, stock prices and same-store sales increases compounded over the next three years. I think the stock prices aspect certainly speaks to potential sway that Bill Ackman has held as Chipotle strives to become more efficient, more profitable, but also return some value for the shareholders. But you go throughout pretty much this entire earnings release. There's a lot of numbers to like here, including online sales increases of 53.5% during the last quarter over the prior year's same first quarter and the fact that they're simplifying things across the board. Simplification was the key here during this earnings call. Management said simplicity is what made the company great initially. The basic mission of providing excellent customer service should be at the forefront of every interaction. And for us, we talk about great customer service all the time, Trent. And to us with Chipotle, as for what it means, we think of it as fresh food in a fast, clean environment. So again, talking about that throughput, management had said that the numbers were good this quarter and they're showing improvement, but they can always be better. And I think that. That's a great mission statement for Chipotle management as you look towards the year ahead. As for the executive compensation, I think if they were to hit on all these cylinders throughout the next three quarters, I think they're going to be very pleased. Through these initiatives, as they trickle down into the store operations, we're talking about the hourly associates all the way up to executive management, I think everyone is buying in. I think that's going to be very good for the shareholders that have stuck around through their bad times. We've been talking about Chipotle a lot over the past year. A lot of ups and downs, particularly in their share prices, you hit a lot of good news on top of bad news. So I am curious to see how they perform in the quarters to come, but unrelated to their core customer service, service experience that they've been talking about. They have undergone an extensive marketing campaign that I had alluded to at the top of the story. Unlike the non-traditional Chipotle marketing campaigns of yesteryear, we talked about Chiptopia very much last year, last summer when they had that loyalty program. And then also the endless buy one, get one coupons that a lot of analysts were criticizing because they were saying that this deeply hurts their bottom line. They have since initiated a network television campaign, a new rollout of commercials and an overarching ad campaign that talks about their clean food initiatives. And they spent actually a little bit less when you're talking about traditional forms of advertising than they did this time last year. They talked about other operating costs were 14.1% during the quarter, down from 18.6% in Q1 of 2016. And so you're saying that not only can this marketing be maybe perhaps a little more efficient, a little better because you're reaching a broader audience, but it's actually being a little little cheaper. So it's a win-win for the company. And they said they're going to be touching the customers through every channel possible, including digital, social, outdoor. We're talking about billboards potentially there, radio and video. And that actually brings us to television where 
you know, there has been an increased frequency in these ad runs. And this was actually asked by one of the analysts on the call. They said that they've actually seen advertisements on nearly every channel and they've seen them a lot. And management responded, CMO Mark Crumpacker responded in saying that they definitely have a strategy of increased frequency for Chipotle ads. And they said that already throughout the first two weeks of this most recent ad campaign, they've gotten 160 million impressions or at least that is what they're estimating. But they've even recently sponsored an NBA playoff game. And so you think of these traditional types of advertising and you think, well, most people are already familiar with the Chipotle brand. Why do this? But Chipotle pretty much responded to this generic way of thinking and saying that they still have some new customers to reach here in North America. And I think that is indeed the case. However, they do not have new numbers yet coming in is to see a direct correlation between the increased television ads and increased traffic in their locations. However, they did say that their Ingredients Rain campaign, the previous campaign before this newest rollout, they said they'd had a 18% conversion rate, meaning that new Chipotle customers were coming in and being regular customers about 18% of the time. And Trent, we all know those are the most loyal customers. Those are the customers to be targeting in the long run are your regular customers. If you can dedicate your store operations to them, you will be profitable and sustainable for the long term. And that's not all from Chipotle. They released the fact that they will be rolling out dessert, something we've discussed in the past. We've been anxiously awaiting a formal announcement by speculating what current ingredients they may use to simplify the back-end process. They'll begin testing for not just one, but two desserts in 2017, but they only detailed one in this release, the Mexican Buenuelos, which is basically fried tortilla strips, something they already have on hand with honey, cinnamon, and sugar. Simple to make. This is something they announced in this rollout. Using their existing equipment, they feel like they can make the Buenuelos and this will require them to just add a few additional ingredients. So that kind of answers our question on the back end of things. And I think from the shareholders' perspective, that had to please them the fact that they're not rolling out a ton of new equipment just to accommodate dessert. Now, quickly to wrap things up, they have potential new openings. The company has said they still see a ton of white space in the U.S. They're projecting right around 200 new locations this year. More importantly, though, they appear not to be overextending themselves. They're seeing strong first-year sales between $1.4 to $1.5 million per unit. Indicates there's still large markets without a Chipotle or at least without many Chipotles. Many of the new restaurants will be in established locations with some built-up brand awareness, but it's not clear what the overall percentage as far as the breakdown is concerned. One perhaps negative note regarding Chipotle at data breach. Chipotle said it detected unauthorized activity on a network that supports payment processing for purchases made at its restaurants. It believes, though, that it's taken the proper steps to stop the activity. This was taking place between March 24th and April 18th, and once they know which restaurant will affect it, they'll roll it out to the people so that precautions can be taken. They also, going forward, will need to do what it takes to mitigate future risk. They can't afford too much more negative PR, especially with things rolling in a proper direction, at least from a sales perspective. Shares were way up on Wednesday after the earnings release, keeping on track with the gains from after-hours trading. Shares were up over 3%, trading around $486 per share. 
not that long ago. Shares were $352 per share. To put this in perspective, though, they still have a long way to go to get back to where they were before the food safety concerns where shares were over $700. We transition to our second earnings story, and this with a previous part owner in Chipotle as McDonald's had a stellar first quarter earnings report despite some revenue declines due to refranchising. First, we begin with shares of McDonald's hitting an all-time high on Tuesday. On the news, shares bounced back close to $142 a share. Like Chipotle, many had thought their sluggish fourth quarter earnings had indicated that perhaps the boost in sales and traffic from the all-day breakfast rollout and new menu options had plateaued the company in terms of same-store sales. However, the numbers said otherwise, and as the company has shown increased efficiencies, despite this top-line pullback because of refranchising, we're seeing that overall operations with McDonald's, not only internationally but in these domestic markets, have really propelled analyst expectations going forward. All important numbers beat their expectations. In fact, as we see net income clocked in at $1.21 billion versus the $1.12 last year, an 8% increase year over year. Earnings per share, earnings per share came in at $1.47 versus the expectations from Thomson Reuters at 133. This was an 18% increase year over year. Again, a faster number because they have been buying back shares. They have been giving back a lot of value to current shareholders. We're seeing that the float is a little less as a result. And so that earnings per share number is going to be propelled. Revenue came in at $5.68 billion versus the 5.53 expected by Thomson Reuters analyst estimates. And this was interesting in that there was a decrease of 4 percent in top line revenue primarily due to this refranchising the company said overall they want about 95 percent of their total store base to be in the hands of a franchisee five percent more revenue from the franchised restaurant through these royalties nine percent less in revenue overall from company-owned sales and that only makes sense because they have less company-owned units to operate Overall, same-store sales surged 4%, and expectations from analysts were just 1%, a function of global traffic being up 0.6%. So again, demand here domestically up as well, with same-store sales up 1.7% versus an expected decline of 0.8%. Increased competition here lately in their space has really caused a lot of pessimism. We talk about Wendy's. As their fourth quarter same-store sales results came in at just 0.8%, again, that was for the fourth quarter so it's not really apples to apples here but we are curious to see if Wendy's too can beat first quarter expectations given these very strong numbers from McDonald's that kind of took us by surprise as well. You see strength across the stock market as far as QSRs are concerned is Wendy's also up a little bit higher on the news. Their CEO, that is to say McDonald's CEO, Steve Easterbrook, said in a statement that there's a sense of urgency across their business they try to retain existing customers and also bring in additional customers. Now, Easterbrook, who's been CEO since March of 2015, was initially hailed by industry experts as he has enabled a little bit more of an agile business. However, it's come at a few costs. For one, a lot of franchisees have been concerned about some of their costs on the back end. And others 
were wondering if he simply picked low-hanging fruit in the all-day breakfast 1.0 and 2.0 rollouts. They questioned about the long-term stability of McDonald's under Easterbrook's leadership, whether or not McDonald's was going to keep its position in the market as the fast food leader. Now, granted, there are other things going on in the QSR industry and also the fast casual industry that have kind of affected businesses that might be positioned to overtake McDonald's, but at least for the time being, McDonald's is operationally sound. As far as stockholders are concerned, McDonald's did return $1.6 billion to shareholders through share repurchases and dividends during the last quarter, and this was in conjunction with the target to return between $22 and $24 billion to shareholders for the three-year period ending 2019. Something that we've talked about quite a bit also manifested itself with McDonald's as McDonald's' U.S. menu at the end of the first quarter reflected a 2% price increase. That was below food away from home inflation for the period, which came in at 2.4%. So while they are experiencing price increases on their menu, it's not quite to the same extent at many other businesses in this sector. Their operating income did grow by more than $250 million or 16% in constant currencies, operating up to now 36% globally. They're selling general and administrative expenses, as we'll talk about from time to time, also fell million for the quarter. And all of this is suggestive, by the way, of increased operational efficiency top to bottom in McDonald's as a company. As we discussed on previous podcasts, recent changes with the company weren't just on its rollout of a much larger all-day breakfast 2.0, but differentiated size offerings with the Big Mac helped them to boost sales, as well as a limited-time price offering with soft drinks and specialty beverages of $1 for any size was rolled out in March. Above and beyond just the soft drinks, they rolled out a pricing scheme for small McCafe drinks, frappes, and real fruit smoothies. Coming in at $2, this was seen as a way to boost traffic without denting margins too much. As we've talked about previously, soda, one of the highest margin items at a McDonald's. Also, a much less talked about idea that this traffic would lead to larger food sales as well. Honestly, these changes, in addition to rolling out some of the frozen beverages that we talked about in certain markets... Uh, seem to have helped bring customers in, but also retain customers, make it more of a habitual visit. And Leighton, there are some larger themes that come into play with McDonald's as a whole that were also addressed in this quarterly release. Kevin Ozan, McDonald's CFO, actually cited higher traffic numbers and cited markets such as the United States and Germany. And overall, it seems that management really has implemented these changes in a very good way and and been very transparent in the way they've interacted with their employees and their management teams. They said that they've actually interviewed over 4,000 people over the last several months trying to get better feedback for the company and to see if they can operate in a better way. And you see here that they really have done a very good job in, in really trying to think of different ways. We're talking about food innovation and ways to communicate with the customer at the point of sale. You're talking about in-store kiosks that have been promoted throughout the European markets for quite some time. And they said that their plans for mobile payment systems are going to be in place in about 20,000 of their 36,000 global locations by the end of the year. So they are not being shy about their technological initiatives here. And overall, we're seeing that the company really has driven menu innovation. We talk about those Big Macs there. And then also store renovations, which the company has been known for. They're not shy about actually converting stores into a newer blueprint 
And some of these stores have actually had recent renovations so that it's a little bit more costly for them, but they've done a good job at ignoring those sunk costs associated with previous store remodels. The company has refreshed stores that, again, have been overhauled in the last few years, and they talk about a cleaner store and a more open store for the consumer. Again, we talk about the idea of these in-store kiosks. They cited established European markets where they had had locations with kiosks for seven to eight years, and they now have over 50% of transactions done through these in-store kiosks. And so with these kiosks, it's kind of interesting because Steve Easterbrook, their CEO, was actually the head of the UK and Northern European operations before taking the helm in March of 2015 as their CEO. And so you're really looking at a CEO that has been experienced with implementing technology in-store, and it has worked, at least in those markets. But they also brought up the idea of customers being able to set up personal profiles and then get rewards off of those profiles, for instance. You get maybe a dollar off for every X amount that you spend. And I think that really will lead to strong uses and overall customer retention in the long run. We talk about rewards programs with general retail. Rewards programs with food is something that has long been tried out, but not really adopted widespread. We talk about Chiptopia being just that, but it was a one-time only program for one summer. We talk about menu offerings may be benefited by a new manager here as well as Linda Von Gosen was announced the head of the U.S. menu division. And she was recently actually at Starbucks where she was responsible for the overall vision and strategic growth plans for Starbucks. And you've seen how Starbucks has really gone and gotten into the food categories. And I think this is something that they will be looking forward to as they look to push in constant competition. We're competing with not only the Wendy's and Burger Kings of the world, but also those Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts of the world as well. To wrap things up here on this story regarding McDonald's, they've also increased communication across the board. It's helped the company, they say, address the needs of their customers. Multiple meetings with over 4,000 managers, franchisees, and hourly employees to see what could be improved. And they're hoping, too, that this will smooth over some of their relationships with franchisees, which, again, we mentioned some franchisees had been a little bit frayed over some of the rollouts during Easterbrook's tenure. Overwhelming support for the rollout of strategic changes, though, from the March Investor Day presentation from these managers, franchisees, and hourly employees. Now, as for the stock price, shares were up over 5% for McDonald's on Tuesday. Like we said, they reached an all-time high as they approached $142 per share. Two years ago, shares were trading at $97 per share, and some analysts went so far as to say that they were akin to a dumpster fire. But Easterbrook has certainly turned things around over the last two years. By the way, May 24th is the date for their annual shareholders meeting, and it's likely that we may be discussing McDonald's again here in about a month. Our last two stories here on the Food Focus podcast detail smaller chains that are eyeing expansion over the next few years. We begin in New York with Papaya King as they are eyeing North American expansion. Their CEO recently professed that they see a runway for at least 500 locations by exploiting some of the larger metropolitan markets in the United States. The company is a deep history, not shy about celebrating its heritage, which in fact They've been doing of late. They've existed since 1932. And the president of Papaya King, Wayne Rosenbaum, recently said that there's no reason only New Yorkers should have the best hot dog. 
You look at their website, you look at some of their street cred, a lot of celebrities really touted Papaya King is one of the best hot dogs in the U.S., but currently, despite all of this press, despite all of this talk, and despite existing since 1932, they only have four restaurants, including one franchised location. Friendsmart, a development company behind part of the Five Guys and Qdoba U.S. expansion pushes, they are leading the push to enter markets outside of New York. Management at Friendsmart stated that 500 locations in the U.S. will be, they say, rather easy. And after they accomplish that goal, they will move on then to international markets. Now, obviously, this is a very ambitious plan going forward for Papaya King, especially given that they only have four locations and these four locations have been established in an area where they have quite a bit of a brand presence. Now, the somewhat basic plan is to establish locations in what they call media markets in order to first boost brand awareness. And Leighton, I know you're in agreement with me. This seems like a great strategy. This will give them time to focus on the quality at the initial locations, but also driving up press in these media markets. You have to figure Los Angeles will be included in this. We've seen a lot of restaurants and QSRs open locations in Texas as that media market continues to grow, whether it's Austin, San Antonio, Houston, or the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And potentially, that would be a possibility for Papaya King going forward. So far, the company does have one location outside of New York. It's a franchise location in where else? Las Vegas, not exactly the biggest media market, but certainly a tourist destination for people across the country. So there might be some national tie-in with people used to Papaya King after seeing them in Vegas, potentially on vacations or trips. Now, this location was just opened in November of last year as kind of a test market outside of New York. And apparently, not only based off of this store, but based off of their longtime New York success, they see a sustainable model due to a number of factors. And you can look at this model and really claim that it's a basic one. However, going to these so-called media markets, these larger metropolitan cities, is going to be a good look if they can pull this off for the company. We talk about a company that has boasted since they've sold a hot dog that they have the best one in America. And so I think right here, they really should focus on these initial locations first. And I think that is going to be the successful strategy, the successful route for Papaya King. You see, initially when they were created in 1932, they actually didn't even have hot dogs. They were selling primarily tropical drinks, which actually makes sense given their name today. But overall, you do see that they have a strategy in place and one that both the company president and the president of Fransmart are comfortable with. Overall, they do see a sustainable model due to a number of factors. And as I roll this down, keep in mind that this is a smaller footprint concept. And so it is going to require a little bit less capital and that's what I'll start off on is keeping with that smaller footprint the president of Francemart said that they will not be shy about continuing that going forward because operationally costs are going to be a little bit lower because of that they said that they only need a 400 square foot building and can have over $1.5 million in sales within that 400 square foot building. And so you're talking about sales per square foot in general merchandise retail. Right here, you're seeing an operation that has a lot of people coming into a very small place. But if you look at their menu, it's a simplistic one. It's not one with a lot of different items on it. 
We had talked over the past year about Portillos having a massive $8 million per year in unit sale figure. However, they have a much larger menu and a much larger footprint with over 5,000 square feet on average. So overall, this is crazy revenue per square foot. You can look at an operation right now that you really have to question as to why now they're just expanding. They've been around for a very long time. It is curious why they're just now deciding to go out throughout the United States and through Canada. And then number two on the list of why this might be a sustainable model going forward is they are limiting themselves. We talk about 500 locations in the U.S. before they start looking at locations abroad. And you're really thinking that maybe this is actually a limit to top line revenue growth because other locations like them. You talk about other restaurants in this arena could have well over a thousand in sustainable volume. So I think overall they are being very careful as to not being concentrated or oversaturated in a particular market. So I think this isn't going to be one of the cases where they're just going to be another street corner QSR in middle America. But number three, something that I was very interested in, in reading here is that they said the staffing for a typical Papaya King will actually be one fourth of that for a typical five guys. So I think right now it is interesting that they are eyeing airports and college campuses where they're going to be getting the most traffic. However, keeping with that that smaller footprint. So again, a lot less overhead associated with smaller buildings. And this is interesting because they said real estate is priority number one. They said this is the main driver for success for any restaurant, and it's on them to pick the correct locations within the United States to build up and expand their franchise. And they said that really they're not going to be scared of identifying and acquiring a target piece of real estate before they even have a before they even have a franchisee or a business partner in mind. So I think that's an interesting way to go about it. They should probably be careful in doing that. They did mention, though, that they will be looking for management that does qualify to run such an operation. My concern for Papaya King in terms of their national expansion, you mentioned the staffing levels being potentially a quarter of what they would be ordinarily at a five guys i think my concern is with throughput you read a lot about papaya king in media outlets and that type of thing you know anything from new york obviously and anything carrying with it the existing media coverage of papaya king will also carry with it traffic to outside locations and oftentimes when you see stories about papaya king the weight is referenced and if you expand to 500 locations After a while, the novelty wears off and people will be less accepting of long waits. The same thing happened if you want to look 20 years ago at when Starbucks was expanding across the country or other regionalized brands. Anytime they expand, we see kind of the same thing currently with In-N-Out Burger as they expand from the West Coast towards the East. That after the first couple of months, the wait times and the willingness to put up with wait times disintegrate. So you have to make sure you keep up that throughput. And even though they feel like they have a program that works for their four locations, I look at these four locations, especially the one in Las Vegas, as areas where people are more willing to put up with longer wait times for something that is novel. But what happens when that novelty wears off? Certainly that's something, of course, that this franchise organization or this expansion organization has looked at and seen. But even in just a 400-square-foot facility, you would have to believe that staffing levels may eventually need to be ramped up 
in order to compete with other QSR operators so that they can keep throughput up and so they keep from chasing possible potential customers away in the future. For our last story, we will be talking about Buffalo Wild Wings as they seem to be going all in on their Our Tacos extension, opening up several locations with others in the works. First, the background as we talk about our tacos. They first began as Rusty Taco with a partnership that was between Rusty Fenton and Steve Dunn, the first location to open in Dallas in 2010. And late summer of 2014, Buffalo Wild Wings swooped in, saw potential in what was then becoming a chain, and became majority owner of Rusty Taco. Sad note here, Rusty Fenton died of kidney cancer in 2013, so he is no longer with the company. But Buffalo Wild Wings rebranded it after acquiring it to R Taco, the letter R and Taco in 2015, along with a new logo and new store look. They used their branding team to get in on that and really try to freshen up their image overall. As we move on to February of 2016, Buffalo Wild Wings released a presser discussing a growth plan for R Taco, which at the time had only 11 locations, so not many locations from this chain. Beyond Dallas-Fort Worth, R Taco had expanded to Denver, the Twin Cities, and then Omaha, Nebraska. Their growth plan included penetration into Austin, Houston, San Antonio, Oklahoma City, Tulsa, St. Louis, and Des Moines, Iowa. So primarily a southern-based chain where they've seen the most success. This press release served as basically a plea for qualified franchise investors in on those cities. And if you look now, you can see that really the franchise criteria for an R Taco is pretty minimal. They want liquid capital of around $750,000. Of course, I don't have that type of money, but also a net worth of $1.5 million, which a lot of franchises and franchisees throughout the country have. And startup costs for the chain, just $25,000 per store. However, this is interesting. This may be pulling back on their overall growth strategy trend in that they cited a standard three-restaurant development agreement, which costs $50,000. So if you're a franchisee interested they're potentially not looking for just a one and done from your development agreement they're looking much more at those markets those markets in texas and oklahoma as well as missouri and iowa and they're still putting out press releases they put out now a couple already this year looking for qualified franchise investors in these markets which suggests that potentially they're having issues finding franchise operators 18 locations currently for our taco but six impending openings in addition to the markets they've already opened buffalo wild wings was able to sign an agreement with a new franchisee three wit enterprises incorporated who opened up a location in Dayton, Ohio. They also have an impending opening in Des Moines, Iowa, and they have a bunch under development. But Leighton, you and I know that when we're talking about franchisees, under development may not mean a whole lot because many times those restaurants never come to fruition. Their Dayton location, we mentioned a new franchisee opening that, Three Wit Enterprises Incorporated. As covered in QSR Magazine, Three Wit Enterprises has prior experience with Buffalo Wild Wings as an organization as they currently operate 15 stores in Ohio and South Carolina. Buffalo Wild Wings sees potential in this partnership. Many R Taco executives and front office personnel have been quoted really supporting Three Wit, but talking about how successful Three Wit has been in the past. Steve Dunn, the CEO currently of R Taco, and again, the original business partner of Rusty Fenton, said in late January that the Minneapolis 
said in late January in the Minneapolis St. Paul Business Journal that he wants a number of locations that he wants the number of locations for our taco to double this year. They were at 16 at the time. This would put them over 30 at year's end. This actually somewhat mildly reiterated by Buffalo Wild Wings earnings call, which just happened today. They mentioned the desire to open two company-owned and 12 to 15 franchised our taco restaurants before fiscal year 2017 is over. So this would put them on the higher end, doubling their overall store count. But even on the low end, this would put them at least at 30 at year's end. Possible roadblocks going forward include saturated in the Dallas, Fort Worth, and Twin Cities markets. Dallas, of course, kind of where the restaurant originated, but it seems like the Twin Cities in Minnesota have now more than their share of our tacos likely reach the upper end of their capacity in those markets. Whether or not they're expanding too quickly is also a worthy question. Considering expansion beyond 30 stores this quickly would mean opening multiple initial locations in untested markets. But honestly, we should at least give them credit for trying. Buffalo Wild Wings has been scuffling a little bit in their flagship restaurants, their flagship Buffalo Wild Wings restaurants, although more on that in a bit as their earnings report today was relatively positive. I think Buffalo Wild Wings is trying to avoid the trap that has plagued Shake Shack now, expanding too slowly only to see their white space captured by other operators. There's a lot of locally owned small chains and generalized larger operators in the fast casual Mexican space or in the QSR Mexican space. So it's going to be difficult if they don't expand quickly because that white space may be scooped up by other companies. They continue to desire experienced business partners. We mentioned a couple of press releases coming out already, but really the question you might get from looking over all this information, why do they feel a need for expansion here? Well, part of it is, again, Buffalo Wild Wings flagship restaurants haven't seen a ton of success during the past couple of fiscal years, but also our taco presents for the company an area of growth, and this is at a time when they're coming under fire from activist investor Mercado Capital Management as far as how they are running their business. These are two entirely different concepts, so it is interesting that they are the majority owner of Our Taco, but if you take a quick glance at their menu and go to rtacos.com, you can see that they really do cater to all times of the day, and I think this is really going to be good. You're looking at unit sales, for instance. You're saying that they serve a breakfast, a lunch, and a dinner, but their breakfast tacos are actually served all day, and you had mentioned simplicity here is they had swooped in, Buffalo Wild Wings did, and really the simpler menu has done wonders for the chain. You're seeing that throughput's going to be increased because of this, and then you see an overall menu that can be maintained throughout the country. This isn't something that is particular to one region of the country. This is something that can have some replication, and it's going to be interesting to see when they do expand out of the south and southwest portions of the United States wholeheartedly to see if this really takes off. But it is very clear, Trent, from what Buffalo Wild Wings has said throughout these press releases that they do want to go about it primarily through franchising. And I am curious to see if franchisees or at least established franchisees are going to take hold of this model and run with it. One interesting note here is that because there are two totally different concepts here, I am curious to see if Buffalo Wild Wings executives reach out to current successful franchisees for the Buffalo Wild Wings locations and try to 
offer up these our taco locations throughout the areas in which they already operate Buffalo Wild Wings full service restaurant. So a lot to take in here. There is going to be a annual shareholders meeting on June 2nd. If we hear a little bit more about the details here and more about the potential profitability of our taco as they really aren't being too transparent on those particulars. But overall, very interesting story here, Trent. And I am glad you brought this to our attention. And again, their earnings report, Buffalo Wild Wings, that is, came out for the first quarter of fiscal year 2017 today. Their total revenue increased 5%. Company-owned restaurant sales increased 5%. And same-store sales increased half a percent at company-owned restaurants, a market change from declines that they had seen in previous quarters. However, their net earnings did fall, so bottom line fell from $32.8 million to $21.5 million in this year's first quarter. As such, Sally Smith, their president and CEO, mentioned that they are actually undertaking a thorough strategy investigation in terms of cost savings. She mentions the rising price of chicken wings and the fact that they have promotional pricing on certain days of the week as reasons for eroding margins. But as we've talked about in previous podcasts, Layton, as their to-go sales go up, their liquor stores decrease and their liquor sales increase and liquor sales, soda sales, that's where they experience the largest margins. If you're not picking those up from to-go orders, you may have struggles going forward. And all of this, all of this coming at a time in which they are constantly battling either through the press or otherwise with this activist investor, Mercado Capital Management, Buffalo Wild Wings has gone so far as to say that Mercado Capital Management doesn't have the long-term interests of the businesses in mind, basically to strip it down to its core, they say Mercado Capital Management more or less doesn't know what it's doing in Buffalo Wild Wings' organization. They said that it doesn't know as much of Buffalo Wild Wings' operations as it should to be a true activist investor, saying that they only have short-term gains in mind. Just this week, two press releases have come out directly implicating Mercado Capital Management, basically in disagreement for stances that Mercado has taken. So a lot going on with Buffalo Wild Wings. You are not incorrect, Layton, in saying that not only are they expanding our taco, but they also came out with earnings today, all the while trying to hold off Mercado Capital Management and a potential takeover of the board by Mercado in order to increase top-line revenue, increase share prices in the short term. Smarcado wants them to sell off a number of company-owned stores, as many as 80% of their company-owned stores, for a quick buck. You see that in after-hours trading, shareholders have not liked the results of Buffalo Wild Wings' most recent quarter shares down almost 3%. But then if you look across the board, since the company's been trading over the last three years, it's been extremely volatile. We're really at a level now in, in terms of share price and market capitalization that they were about in 2014. So a lot of interesting news for the company as they've been fighting activist investors, but also the common shareholders that really been expecting larger returns from the company that has seen some struggles as of late with not only people going to other full-service restaurants and quick-service restaurants, but then also people choosing to stay at home and eat for a little bit more of a budgetary reason. Well, it's time for our final segment on the Food Focus podcast, a segment we call What We Ate, where each Leighton and I tell you about a product that we tried over the last week that was of a new or newer food product to the market. And we begin with Leighton. 
Well, I don't have a food product because this week I only ate Chipotle and our listeners have heard that time and time again. So I actually have a shameless plug for our retail focused podcast that's going to be coming out later this week, a story that we have to research Trent and talk about. It's going to be about Whole Foods, one of them, and the possible acquisition by Albertsons, which is actually the number two strict grocer in the United States in terms of unit count. And this is going to be interesting because here you have Whole Foods that has been around for quite some time, but over the last year or two, stagnation in their share price. And you see a lot of management shakeups as they no longer have a co-CEO position as of this last year. And then obviously they have been saying some things that have been spicing up the media outlets as of late. Things like they are open to strategic alternatives, really leaving the door open for activist investors to come in there and possibly sell off the chain and their assets. But overall, with that story, there is a second story about super value claiming that their wholesale grocery division has actually increased by about the same amount that their retail division has fallen. So a lot to look forward to this week on the Retail Focus podcast and a lot that actually ties into the Food Focus podcast. We just could not fit it all in here today. All right, we'll turn this around, Leighton. What was the best thing or what has been the best thing you've ever eaten at the Whole Foods grocery section or their in-store restaurant? I would have to say the pizza. They always have it fresh, ready to go, and the variety there. They they try, at least in my location, to have a different type of pizza rolled out every single day. So a little bit different options there as far as that in-store restaurant concept is concerned. Well, I struck out to try and find something that a listener kind of recommended to us because it may not be all that good. Listener 10 on Twitter mentioned that he had tried the nitro cold brew from Califia Farms and didn't much care for it. And I said, well, not beyond trying that, but I couldn't find it anywhere. And so we'll have to save that for another episode. It's actually not only cold brew coffee, but it's nitrogen infused combined with almond milk and macadamia milk, which if you're familiar with coffee or barista-ing, that is a little bit easier to steam than most plant-based milks. But what I did find from Califia Farms was their toasted coconut almond milk. Now, this began to be distributed more widely at the beginning of the year, most notably to Kroger's throughout the country. It was available at limited locations, including Publix, towards the end of 2016. This product was $3.99 in my market for 48 ounces in a bottle, 45 calories per 8-ounce serving. And what it is is a toasted coconut coconut almond milk blend. And I'm a big drinker of plant-based milks, and I have yet to find something that has just the thickness or the texture of traditional milk that you would see in a dairy section. This comes perhaps the closest, but I think the flavor profile really sets it apart. The toasted coconut strikes out, and despite the fact that it's only 45 calories per serving, it does taste a little bit sweeter than most unsweetened products, and this is indeed an unsweetened product. So I'd actually recommend this product. I don't know at the price point if I would buy it every day for my plant-based milk needs, but I think it is one worth trying out, especially if you're a fan of the toasted coconut flavor that'll do it for us on the food focus podcast for late and i'm trent saying so long late already previewed the retail focus podcast i don't have to do that therefore but do check us out on twitter at the food focus or at retail podcast until later this week with the retail podcast we'll see you then this has been the food focus podcast 
As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. 